I have to apologize for something right off the bat, and that is I'm a map geek. I love maps. I'm a geography guy. Geography and history are my thing. So I'm going to bore you with a map right off the bat. How's that sound? Okay. Some of you are okay with that. Good. Thank you, Colin, for giving me permission. So we're on a journey with Paul. This is his second missionary journey. He's been invited through a vision from the man of Macedonia to come and visit and share the gospel with the people of Europe. And so here's a map to bore you. This is big enough. Good, we can see this. This is great. So he starts off, he's moving along. He comes to Thessalonica. We're not going to spend a lot of time here, but he spends three Sabbaths, three Saturdays, reasoning in the synagogues with the Jewish people in Thessalonica. And things go relatively well. People respond to the gospel. Some are saved. Jewish and Greek people that are there. Greek people who feared God. But as time moves on, he gets persecuted and gets chased out of Thessalonica. And they come after him. And so he goes to the next town, which is Berea. And I love this town. We don't know much about it other than he goes to the synagogue there and he reasons again with the people there from the scriptures about who Jesus is. And he helps them fill in the missing piece that really the Old Testament had for a lot of people. That is Jesus. He fulfills everything that's mentioned there. And I love what it says about the Berean people in verse 11 of chapter 17. It says, now the Berean Jews were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica. And it gives two reasons. Number one, it says, for they received the message with great eagerness. And, reason number two, they examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. I love that. They were noble people. They were of noble character. Why? Because it says they received the word of God with eagerness. Their hearts were open. They showed up each day to hear the word of God with a heart that was already open to what God wanted to say to them. And my question for you this morning is when you come On Sunday morning, do you come with a heart that's already open and saying, God, what do you want to teach me? What is it that you want me to hear from your word this morning? That's the kind of anticipatory set. That was a term that I learned in college. You want to show up expecting something to happen in your life. And I hope that we have that every Sunday. I hope that we don't come and go, oh, I've already heard this story. No, I, you know, eagerness. So they were eager to hear. Their hearts were open. They weren't skeptical, but they were critical. What do I mean by that? Number two, it says they examined everything that Paul said. They didn't just accept what Paul said. They examined what Paul said. And I love that for a couple reasons. Number one, they didn't just take it at face value, and I hope that you do that with me. If I share things from the scripture, I hope you don't just go, well, Ken said it, so it's got to be true. Hopefully, yes, but not, okay? But please don't accept it just because Ken says so or the guy on the radio says so. Accept it because that's what God's word says. But what I love, it goes even deeper than that. I think it, it says every day. This isn't just a Sunday thing. Getting into God's word is an everyday thing. And that's what they were about. So they went home from their Sabbath then, and they got into the Scripture. Let's be like the Berean people. 
And I want to be like them. I want to be noble like them. I've entitled our sermon today, we're going to start in verse, 30, verse 16 of chapter 17 in the next town that Paul goes to, Athens. But I entitled this one, Impacting Our Culture. I think we as Christians approach culture in one of three ways. I think that we either isolate ourselves from our culture, put up a wall, step away from it, condemn it, get angry with it, turn away from it, get frustrated with it, isolate. Or maybe the next step closer and a little better would be insulate. Okay, but I'm going to insulate myself and protect myself from my culture. I want to challenge us to think about a better way to deal with our culture, and that is impact our culture. I want to encourage us not to step away, but to step towards, step into this culture where we live. That's what Paul is going to do today in Athens. That's what our Savior did, if you think about it, for us. I want to challenge us to say, what can I be doing on my time here on this earth to impact my culture for the gospel? We don't have to fear the world. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Why why would we fear? We don't have to. Greater is he that's in you. The gospel has what it takes to address cultural assumptions that we have in our culture even today. Paul's going to address those. He's going to attack those. He's going to challenge those. And we need to be doing the same thing. And that's okay because the gospel can stand up. We don't have to apologize for anything. We have something the world needs. There's the biggest reason why we need to impact our culture. We have something this world desperately needs. So let's be about that. So let's look at verses 16 to 21 to start off with. As Paul heads into Athens now, and on the map, going back way south, down on the Mediterranean coast is the city of Athens. So let's read the account here. It says in verse 16, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace to, with those who just happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. What's going on? They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and they brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? You are bringing some very strange ideas to our ears and we would like to know what they mean. And then in parentheses in verse 21, Luke, the author of Acts, adds for us, All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. That was Athens. That was the culture into which Paul found himself on his second missionary journey. So what is he going to do? Well, first of all, 
It says he was waiting for them in Athens. What is, what's going on? A little bit of background real quickly. The last verse of chapter 16, it says that, in fact, I'll read it real quickly. After Paul and Silas came out of the prison, they went to Lydia's house, I preached on this a while back, where they met with the brothers and sisters and encouraged them. Then they left. Up to that point, um, the, the doctor, Luke, had been with them. The, the we passages was introduced. He was there. Now, verse 40, they, it's they, it's not me. Luke is no longer with Paul. And then in verses 14 and 15, in Berea, it says there that Silas and Timothy stayed there. They stayed at Berea to strengthen, probably to strengthen the believers, to make sure everything was okay. And so it's Paul by himself who's in Athens. He finds himself there. He's got time to kill. And so he walks around. He just, he's just checking things out. Athens, what is this city like? Well, in, in its day prior, in the Greek, when the Greeks dominated the world, it was the city, but now the Romans are in power. But it's still a very significant place. It was the seat of Greek culture and thought. Plato, Aristotle, these type people, that's where they hung out. That's where these teachings came from. It was also the religious capital of Greece. It was a very significant city. And it says Paul was distressed. What does that word mean? It means he had a visceral reaction, emotional, gut. There was concern. Why? It says as he walked around and he just looked out there, he saw idols everywhere. You could turn, there were idols. And it says he became distressed. There was a pagan writer, Petronius, who made this quip about Athens. He says, it's easier to find a god in Athens than a man. That's how many idols that they had in this city. And it struck Paul in his guts, in his heart. Maybe it angered him, but I think it was more he was moved with compassion. He was moved with, I gotta do something here. I can't just let this be, it's driving me crazy. It was the Holy Spirit stirring him up. It's like when Jesus was moved with compassion, when he saw the people like sheep without a shepherd. It was the same thing. I've got to do something. Ever been distressed walking around Portland? I have. I mean, just go downtown. Just walk around Clackamas. You don't have to go that far. Look at our culture. Look at what we see just out in our neighborhood. It should stir our hearts. Something should be going on in our hearts saying, this isn't right. This isn't the way it was meant to be. I know what God's intent is. I'm part of the kingdom of God. There's something we can be doing here. That's the kind of stirring that was going on in his heart. It says he went to the synagogue, to the Jews and the Greeks who were God-fearers, but it says he also went to the marketplace, the Agora. It's the place where everybody would go. It was a place where they would purchase food. It was a place where they expressed ideas. The synagogue people would be there because they wanted to be there. They wanted to learn more about God in the Old Testament scriptures. In the marketplace, it says people that just happened to be there. They were just there for who knows what reason, but Paul went both places. To those that wanted to be there, those that just happened to be there. Again, we're gonna see, and I've been talking about this, the audience is different, the method 
is different. The starting point for sharing the gospel is going to be different, but the message is the same. It's always about Jesus. It's always about his death, burial, his resurrection. It's always about how you can have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. The gospel never changes, but the way maybe our audience, our method, the way that we share it, the place we start, it's going to look a little different, and that's what's going on here. It says he reasoned. This word is dialogamai, which we get our word dialogue from. It wasn't that he stood up and pounded the pulpit, shouted at them. It's two-way. It's this idea of expressing ideas. It's this idea of listening. It's this idea of what do you think? Let's hear your view, and then I'll share mine. Let's dialogue about this a little bit. And I think that's a beautiful way to, to be involved in people's lives, to have an opportunity to show that you respect them enough to listen to them, to earn their trust, to gain an audience for them to hear the gospel, right? It's a beautiful word, and that's what he was doing. It says he met two kinds of people specifically, two philosophy schools there that were there that day. First, there was the Epicurean people and the Stoics, verses 18 to 21. So Epicurean, who are they? Now, this is a weird story, and you're going to wonder, where's he going with this? You probably wonder that a lot with me. That's okay. I loved, and I've shared this before, ice cream at Farrell's Ice Cream Parlor. Right? Some of you that are older know what I'm talking about. There's just nothing like Farrell's anymore. As a kid, that was the place to go because it was all about ice cream and candy and what a beautiful place to celebrate. So on their menu, they had a lot of different ice cream dishes. One of them was the pig trough. It was basically, right? If you wanted to be a pig for a day, it was two banana splits, and I would eat it with pride, okay? And that was my go-to. But on the menu right below that was a thing called the Epicurean Delight. And I remember asking my dad as a kid, I remember asking my dad, what is the Epicurean, what's that all about? And he explained to me the idea of Epicurean. Epicurean is all about pleasure. It's about experiencing life and all the pleasures of life, and that's the philosophy behind the whole Epicurean. So this ice cream thing had everything in it. I mean, they just threw all of the ice cream into this big bowl with all the condiments and all the fixings, and it was just this blast of flavor, Epicurean. So Epicurean, these were your hedonists. Live for the moment. Enjoy pleasure, avoid pain. Um, They were humanists, philosophy and science over religion. This life is all there is, live for the moment, because death is the end. So soak it all in now because there's nothing after this, right? There's no creator. We're here only by random chance. Does that sound familiar in our culture? kind of does, doesn't it? You make your own truth. It changes, and it's up to you to kind of determine that. It's very relative. They were agnostic and deistic in their belief about God. By that I mean he may or may not exist. That's agnostic. Deistic means if he does, question mark, he's remote. He's out there. He's not really involved in anything that goes on here. He just kind of is out there doing his thing, and we're here doing our, and there, there really isn't any kind of connection between us and God. 
That was what the Epicureans believed. Then, along with them, was the Stoic philosophers. They were your moralists. They felt like the meaning of life is to be good, to do good things. They had a moral sense of duty. It's not live as you want, but live as you should. There was a, there's a value up here, and we need to be attaining that. Self-mastery is the greatest virtue. Be in control of your life. Detach and harden yourself to pain and pleasure, both. They stood back from pleasure. They stood back from pain, and they said, if anything, we can be better people through both of these. So it was a little bit different philosophy. They lived simply. Their whole thing was keep a stiff upper lip. Don't let anything get you down. They were pantheistic. Everything is God. God is in everything. This idea that is out there even today. The common element that really tied the two together was both of them were living for the here and now. It's the book of Ecclesiastes when it says life under the sun. It's only about now. It's not about the next life, eternity. Focus on the here and now. And their views of God were obviously lacking. And the one thing they both would agree on is that you couldn't really come to know God rationally. So they bring two indictments against Paul in verse 18. First of all, they call him a babbler. That was not a compliment, by the way. And what that word literally means is seed gatherer or picker. It's this picture of this bird going out there and picking up just kind of random seeds of truth and then trying to mix and match them all together into one cohesive philosophy. That's what they were saying Paul was doing. Paul, you're just kind of picking and choosing some random seeds out there like this bird, and you're trying to match them together, and they're not matching. And then they said he's advocating foreign gods. Is Paul just bringing another foreign deity into the already crowded pantheon of gods that we have here in Athens? What's going on, Paul? I find it ironic in history that Paul is being mocked for his Christian beliefs, but yet over the next 250 years, it's Christianity. It's the philosophy of Christianity that is going to control the world and overcome. So Paul is introducing the gospel and the truth about Jesus Christ, and the world's going to be changed because of it. They say, these are very strange ideas to our ears, Paul. And so they invite him to go to the Areopagus. This was a rock outcropping that is still there today in Athens. In fact, if you go there today, Athens, they have a plaque on this outcropping rock of Paul's sermon from Acts chapter 17. It's right there on the rock. I Googled it. You can see it. I should have snagged a picture and shot it up on the wall. It's really cool. This is one of the cities I want to see because this Areopagus was right next to the Acropolis is the one that we think of, the Pantheon, all these incredible buildings where the gods were worshipped, these incredible structures of the Greek culture. This was, that was the huge one that stood high above the city. The Areopagus was a smaller one, close in location, but it was here where people went to hear court cases and it was here that Paul was invited to discuss some ideas with the people. It was the hill of Ares, 
the Greek god of war. If you watch Wonder Woman, that movie, Ares, right, was the Greek god of war. The Romans renamed it Mars Hill. That was their god of war, Mars. And so that's where Paul was invited. So Paul's like, this is amazing. I have an opportunity to share Jesus Christ with these people. I have an opportunity to share God with these people. Look what he says in verses 22 to 29. He just steps up. I love this. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, people of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. He quotes it directly off the altar. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship. And this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. You're ignorant. I'm in the know. You're ignorant. I'm going to proclaim the truth to you. Here it is. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. That's my God. Secondly, verse 25, he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. That's my God. Verse 26, from one man, Adam, he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth, and he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and by God's grace find him. Isn't that beautiful? Though he is not far from any of us, for in him we live, we move, we have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. Paul says, as he gets up to speak, as he's given this grand opportunity to talk about God, he says, I see that you're very religious. Now, that's an interesting thing to say about people. I don't think he's insulting them with that necessarily. In the King James it says, I see that you're superstitious. They are, but I don't know if that's a a fair translation. I don't think he's flattering them either by saying you're religious, but I think what he's saying is I'm just making an observation here based on what I've seen as I've walked around. You're a very religious people. You're open to this idea of God. You know that he's kind of out there somewhere. You're trying maybe to do things to reach out to him, and that's what religion is, isn't it? It's man doing any number of things to reach God. That's religion, okay? Christianity is about relationship. It's about God who loves us and reached down to you and me to bring us into a relationship. When There's a huge difference there. He says you're very religious, but you're missing the point. And I want to explain some things to you. And then he mentions this altar to an unknown God. What is going on there? One of the commentaries I found was very helpful here. I think what Paul was doing is referring to something that had happened in their history. And he's going to 
go back there, and then he's going to use that platform to talk about God. Let me read this account to you. Epimenides, a Greek poet, prophet, was a 6th century B.C. philosopher, religious prophet, contemporary of the more famous philosophers like Aristotle, Plato, who also refer to him in their writings. We're going to see Epimenides again in this chapter, by the way, because Paul's going to reference him. But here's the story. Athens was the subject of a terrible plague, and the city elders were at a loss to know how to abate it. They believed the city was under a curse because they were guilty of treachery against the followers of Cylon, who, had slay, who they had slayed after they had been promised amnesty. They tried sacrificial offerings, but to no avail. Turning to the oracle for wisdom, the priestess said there was another god who remained unappeased for their treachery. Okay, you've been sacrificing to all these gods, but there's another god out there that you need to reach out to. Who was this unknown god? The priestess did not know, but advised that they should send a ship to the island of Crete and fetch a man named Epimenides, who would know how to appease the offended god. Epimenides postulated that indeed there must still be a god unknown to them, great enough and good enough to do something about the plague if they invoked his help. But the elders question, how could they call upon a God whose name is unknown? That's a great question. We don't know him. How can we call upon him? Great question. Epimenides responded, any God good and great enough to do something about the plague is probably also great and good enough to smile on their ignorance if they acknowledged their ignorance and called upon him. Epimenides advised the elders, check this out. This is where it gets a little crazy. Epimenides advised the elders to seek a sign from the unknown God. He told them to graze a flock of healthy sheep of different colors, some white, some black, on the grassy slope of Mars Hill. Heropagus, that's where Paul was at that moment. He then prayed something along these lines, and here's a quote. O thou unknown God, behold the plague afflicting the city. And if indeed you feel compassion to forgive and help us, behold the flock of sheep. Reveal your willingness to respond, I plead, by causing any sheep that pleases you to lie upon the grass instead of grazing. Choose white if white pleases black if black delights, and those you choose we will sacrifice to you, acknowledging our pitiful ignorance of your name. Although it was early morning when the sheep were at their hungriest and therefore unlikely to stop grazing, before long some sheep settled down to rest and these were separated from the remainder of the flock for the sacrificial offering. Epimenides ordered stonemasons to construct altars on each animal's resting place. On each, following his instructions, they inscribed the words, Agnostotheo, to an unknown god. Within a week, the Athenians, stricken by the plague, recovered. So here's what Paul's doing. He goes, explain to me this altar of this unknown God thing, knowing full well probably what it was in the story of what had happened there in their history. And he's playing upon that and saying, okay, you know, you worship and you have an altar to a God that's unknown. Let me reveal a God to you, a God that is known. And let me tell you about him. That's what he does right here, starting in verse 24. 
He starts with creation and takes him on a journey through to the person of Jesus Christ. And that's his sermon. My God is the creator, verse 24. This view of God is very different from both the Stoics and the Epicurean people. To the Epicurean, they believe we just got here by random chance. There is no creator. Evolution, whatever you want to call it, time and chance, millions and billions of years type thing, right? Heard this before? You know, Satan has done an amazing thing. His tool, his weapon of evolution has cut off that pipeline of revelation in people's minds between God and man. It's a very evil, it's a very core, it's, it's a very striking thing, but Satan knows this because he knows if I hit there, then all the rest isn't really gonna matter. If I strike at the creation story and the truth about God the creator, then the rest really isn't gonna matter. We know from scripture that God has revealed himself to us externally and internally through his creation. Psalm 19.1, the heavens declare the glory of God, right? The skies proclaim the work of his hands. That's the external creation. Just look outside, people. See God's work. It's amazing. But then Romans 1.19, and this is the New American Standard rendering. It's a little bit different. I want to read this. It says, because that which is known about God is evident, and then the New American adds, within them. It's evident, and he's talking about creation, so it's out there, but it's also evident within them, for God made it evident to them. There's something in our souls, conscious, sense of morality, whatever you want to call it, that God created that's inside us, that's internal, that points to him, just as much as everything that's beautiful out there points to our creator says you need to know him. So God is our creator. He's separate from and exists beyond us. So he's speaking now to the Stoics. God isn't the creation, he's separate. He is the creator, he's separate from his creation and distinct from his creation. It's not just God is everything and he's in everything. There's a distinctness to all of this. But to both of them, This is a God that you can know. Then verse 25, God is a giver. He doesn't need anything from us. He's self-sufficient. In fact, he is the one who gives us everything. He sustains our life. He didn't just create us and then leaves us alone. He gives us all the things that we need. He sustains our lives. Then, verse 26, if that isn't enough, I want to tell you about my God who's sovereign. He is the sovereign one. He marked out times and boundaries of nations. This is a God that not only created man, he's sovereign and started it all with creation, but he's a God of history. Everything that's happened with the Greeks and now the great Roman Empire that is in power Guess what? God had this all in line. It's all predetermined. He's marked it out. He's in charge. He's sovereign. God is greater than you think, but here's a reality. God is closer than you think. And in my note taker, I have a a misspelled word, so I want to correct this one. I have eminent with an E. It's really imminent, I-M-M, 
I-M-M-I-N-E-N-T, imminent. What does that mean? He's close. Verse 27, God's desire is that you would seek him, that you would reach out, that you would find him. Because here's the reality, he's not far from any one of us. He's out there. He's transcended. He is far beyond us. He is greater than us. He is distinct from his creation. But here's a really amazing reality. He's so close that you can reach out to him. He's right here and now. He is among us. He's with us here. He is accessible. He's transcendent, but yet he is very much imminent. And when I think of these two realities about God that are, they're not opposites of each other, they really work together beautifully. I think of Isaiah 40. And I encourage you to go home and read the whole chapter, but here are some verses from Isaiah 40. Look how it shows transcendence of God, imminence of God. See the sovereign Lord comes with power. He rules with a mighty arm. See his reward, it's with him. His recompense accompanies him. Transcendent. He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms. He carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those that have young. Wow. What a beautiful picture of our God. He's very imminent. He's with us. He's close. He desires that relationship with you and me. He's like a shepherd. Cares for his sheep. Carrying it in his arms. It's a beautiful picture, isn't it? Then it continues on in verse 28 to 31. Do you not know... Have you not heard the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth? He will not grow tired or weary. His understanding no one can fathom. He's transcendent. Wow. But yet, look what he does. He gives strength. He, does not, uh, he gives strength to the weary, increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary. Young men stumble and they fall. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not faint. I want to encourage you to go home and read Isaiah 40, the whole thing, because it starts out, verse one, comfort, oh comfort my people, Israel. They needed to hear something. They needed to know something about God in that time of their life because it seemed like everybody was out to get them. The Assyrians were on their way. Life was not looking good, but yet in the middle of all that, we have this incredible revelation of who God is in Isaiah chapter 40. He is so great. He is so far beyond our thinking and our understanding, but yet he is so close. And he's so knowable to us because he's revealed himself to us. So here's my God, but yet in verse 28, he's gonna quote from two Greek poets and philosophers. The first one is Epimenides, that same guy that I read the story of the sheep and that crazy unknown God altar, that all came from him. And Paul quotes Epimenides in verse 28. For in him we live, we move, we have our being. That's Epimenides, that was one of his famous quotes. I put Titus 1.12, I think it's in your note taker, but this is another time that Paul quotes Epimenides. It's in the book of Titus. Paul knew these people. He widely read. And he wasn't saying, I agree with everything that they write, by any means. In fact, I'm opposed to most of what they write. But there's things they say that have a hint of truth or that I'm gonna use to share the real truth of who God is. 
Titus 1.12, and I like this one. One of Crete's own prophets has said, Epimenides was from the island of Crete, by the way, so he's saying this about his own people. Cretans are always liars, they're evil brutes, and they're lazy gluttons. How's that? I know my people. I live here. I'm one of them. Here's what we are. I love that. And it was a quote that Paul had from Epimenides, the same guy. But then he, he quotes another Eratus from 310 B.C. when he says in verse, at the end of verse 28 there, it says, we are his offspring. It was from a famous poem from this man later on. And again, it's not that he's agreeing with them, but he's using them to teach the truth about God and to bring in the truth about Jesus Christ. Similar to how we might use an author or a public figure today. Gandhi had some great sayings. Um, some people we might not agree with all their philosophy, obviously, but you know what? They said some pretty amazingly true things. And it's like, wow, they hit it right on the head. And sometimes it's okay to do that. We're not all children of God, but we are all creatures of God. I think it's important to point that out. We're all God's children. You hear people say that sometimes. This idea of universal fatherhood. We're, we are children of God by rebirth into the family of God. We need to be born again to become part of his family, but we're all creatures. We are all God's creatures because we're all created by God. That is very true. And so we all are endowed with the image of God and the value that comes from that, but we are not all children of God. That happens through faith in our Lord Jesus Christ and rebirth into his family. I love how I've told you about my God. I want to tell you about my Savior. Look at verses 30 to 34. In the past, God overlooked ignorance. God's patient. He understands. He overlooked that, but now he's commanding all people everywhere. Time is now here to repent. It's time to change your heart and your mind about who God is and turn in your life. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. Some of the, after that, Paul left the council. Some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysus, a member of the Areopagus, and a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. Paul says, I've told you about my God. I want to tell you about my Savior. And he introduces Jesus, first of all, as the righteous judge. There's a day where we will all stand before God. There is a God out there. There is accountability to this God. And I want to introduce to you the judge. And his name is the man, Jesus Christ. You need to repent. You need to ask him forgiveness. You need to come into a relationship with Jesus Christ because he is the one who will judge you someday. Then, he's not just our righteous judge, he is also the risen Savior. Now, what Paul's doing here, everything that Paul has been saying up to this point, everything that Jesus had said and done when he lived on this earth, had to be verified. And the only way that could be verified was through the resurrection 
of Jesus Christ from the dead. Because if he is not a resurrected Savior, then he is no better than you and me. That's the power of the resurrection. If, if it is true, if the resurrection is true, Christianity must be embraced because God has verified everything that Jesus said and did while he walked this earth. If it is not true, then it needs to be ignored. That's how important the resurrection is. And so, all of a sudden, this sermon kind of stopped abruptly. There was the sneerers who mocked and probably walked away and left at that point, but there were others who said, I need to hear a little more, and then there were others who believed. This is it. He's the one I've been looking for. Here's a couple questions for us. How are we going to approach or respond to our culture? Are we going to step away and isolate? Are we going to step back and insulate ourselves from it a little bit? Or are we going to step forward and impact our culture? You know, Paul didn't just let culture impact him. He impacted culture. He said, I want to do something. It's like in our anger class downstairs. Be angry. That righteous indignation is for real. It's legit. It's commanded. There's things that should stir us. There's things that should get us angry as we see in this world. So what do we do? Just get angry and let it simmer? Get angry and just start yelling at people and go crazy? No, of course not. Get angry and do something. Do something for the kingdom of God. That's what we're called to do. You know, this is really the story of the gospel. Christ was distressed by what he saw when he came to this earth. It stirred in his soul. It must have been painful for the Son of God to walk on the earth and see sin. But he plunged into, he impacted, he stepped into our world, and he gave his life for you and me. That's the story of the gospel. And that's the story of what we have been called to do as his followers and as his disciples. Let's do that today. Amen.